Advice from King Cocktail is always a good thing. Listen to him today. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Dale DeGroff, author of Craft of the Cocktail and the newly issued, revised issue of that book called The New Craft of the Cocktail. Welcome, Dale. Hi, Liz. I'm delighted to be here. So it's really good to have you and to kind of catch up. We haven't talked in a while. I actually remember seeing you at Tales of the Cocktail, not this virtual one, but the one before that. So it's been a good while. Um, Yeah, it has. And I miss New Orleans. Do you know what it means? (laughs) (laughs) It's really quiet here these days. It really is. Yeah, I'll bet it is. And they say Midtown is a ghost town. Full streets. I bet. I bet. Well, you're not in. You're not in New York anymore. But no, I, I'm in a little. I'm in the southeastern corner of Connecticut, about five minutes from the Rhode Island border. My mom lives in that town right next door, and I can walk to her house in about twelve minutes. <laughs> wow. That, that is, yeah, it's lovely. That's, that's nice. Seaside, beautiful old whaling villages, Stonington, Mystic. It's quite a lovely area, you know. Yeah, sounds really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Just painting away right above my head. (laughs) (laughs) If you have to be isolated, it sounds like a nice place to. It is. Yeah, we got lucky. This wasn't the plan because we started this whole move before COVID came, but it turned out to be lovely. That's good. That's good. So I'm going to hit right to the original question here. Why did you decide to revise your very Uh, classic book? Well, to be absolutely, completely honest, Random House, Penguin Random House, which owns Clarkson Potter, the publisher, the cookbook publisher. And I, by the way, back in 2000, when I signed the contract for the original craft, I was the first cocktail book that ever got published by Clarkson Potter because they're, they're a cookbook house. And uh, so they're owned by Penguin Random House. And I got a call from an editor over there who, who had just done a revised version of Gaz Reagan's book, the, the Joy of Mixology. And she said, you know, we really, really want to do a revised edition of the craft. And I said, well, now here, you got to understand something, Liz. This is in its 17th hardcover printing, and I've been making money off it every year. And I'm yeah, like, I'm not sure I want to give up the money. You know what I'm saying? Because what, what if the new edition doesn't sell as well, right? That's, so that's, that's in my mind, along with other stuff. The other stuff was, of course, that it was a book of its time. It was important in its time because it had pictures of the garnish and of me manipulating the tools. And it had, it had a lot more than the cocktail books that came you know, before it, where there were just long lists of ingredients and there wasn't, wasn't a lot of help for the bartender. It was a book that I wished I'd had when I was like 23 years old and, and a waiter wanting to move on to being a bartender. And there's just nowhere to go no internet, no place to get information, you know, and there was a lot of misinformation around. But eventually, my agent, I have a really, really wonderful agent at Writer's House here in New York, and I talked about it, and she said, you know, 
you should get your name out there again, you know. <laughs> Not exactly a spring chicken here at 72. And, you know, I've been around a long time. And I, I have stuff to tell these young cats. And I have a lot of them who are friends of mine in this craft bar movement who, who are extraordinarily creative. And I wanted to shine a light on some of those guys. I, I wanted to tell the story about where I think the craft cocktail movement came from because it, I, I had a front row seat starting in 1969 to not only the craft cocktail movement, which was really a new millennium thing, but the culinary revolution that you and I both lived through, which is extraordinary. And I had additionally the, the good fortune to work with a genius named Joe Baum, who was one of the people, let me turn off my phone, I'm sorry about that. One of the people who uh, played a large part in that revolution, uh, as you know, back back to the moment when he was uh, creative director for the Restaurant Associates Company in 1953, and went on to create extraordinary, amazing restaurants, groundbreaking restaurants, the Four Seasons, uh, La Fonda del Sol, which celebrated the foods of Central America, South America, which, by the way, in 1960, when it opened, had three mezcal drinks, three tequila drinks, a pisco sour, and a mojito. Those drinks wouldn't see the light of day again until the 2000s. So this was 1960. Joe was so far out front, you know, of the movement, but he had a vision. The vision was a, a new American cuisine. And he shared that vision with somebody named James Beard. Mm -hmm. So James Beard, starting right away, became his menu consultant with the Four Seasons, with La Fonda, with the Four of the Twelve Caesars, Windows on the World, on and on and on, until, until James died in 87. He was Joe's go-to guy, because they both thought, well, you know, why should all the restaurants be four-star French restaurants or four-star Italian restaurants? What's wrong with the, what's wrong with our native cuisine, you know, our regional cuisine, and it happened. Mm -hmm. You know it happened. You're deeply involved in it. And I believe, and I talk about it here, that, you know, it was that, that movement through Nouvelle and California cuisine and Alice and, 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 and Paul Pagus, Roger Verger, Al Chapal, all these people who were involved in this total sea change in culinary uh, created an audience for us of people in love with big flavor, in love with, you know, willing to take chances mostly mm -hmm. because this thing that happened in, in, at the end of the millennium where people started meddling together strawberries and basil leaves and, and putting a thyme as a garnish and making and doing sous vide and we stole every possible ingredient that we could and every every technique from the kitchen and it, it became a real thing and I think that that audience that was created in those 30 years say from 70 to 2000 with that extraordinary explosion of activity really was the audience that we ended up playing to. Well and I always think of us as a nation of immigrants which gave us a certain pass on importing all of those ingredients because we could claim them all in a way. Yeah. Totally, totally. And you know, the sad thing was that all during the culinary revolution, when they were going back to real fresh ingredients, they were getting, they're actually, you know, inspecting the herds and getting real uh, uh, prosciutto. They were getting, you know, Parmesan uh, from, uh, from getting, you know, Pacific Rim ingredients. Everything was coming in, uh, air freighted in, and, and we figured out how to do all those lines of supply, but we didn't figure it out 
on the cra- on the cocktail side, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We didn't figure out how to get a, a steady stream of lemons and limes into our bars so that they could be squeezed down into juice so that we could make our drinks with real ingredients. And, that, and, and not to mention all the other ingredients that we adopted from the kitchen. The bars themselves were 19th century bars. There was no accommodation for, they weren't garmage stations. And suddenly we needed a garmage station behind the bar, you know. Right. And, and to this day, we really haven't caught up from the workbench point of view to the 21st century, 21st century drinks, you know. It's a really interesting problem that a lot of young bartenders are trying to work out. Now, I'm sure you've seen a craft bar where they have all the lines of bottles with all their tinctures right. and homemade bitters. <laughs> and it's like a wall between them and the guests, you know. And I'm saying to these young guys, this is guest property. Get that stuff off my bar. You know, I want some communication with you. I, we call them the tweezer drinks, you know, where the head's down and oh, yeah, you know, picking up the pieces of it, you know, <laughs> which is great for the garmage system, but not the bar. And bar, we want your attention on us, you know. <laughs> and it becomes, it becomes just about the product as opposed to the communication. Yes. And really, you know what? It, it's finally happened in the craft culture movement. They finally realized that this is, sure, we're really thrilled about that we're making things that are real and they taste good. We're going back to classic recipes and we're even taking those recipes and riffing on them. You know, we have our classic, we have our, our, our simple sauces. I mean, our, our basic sauces, those five that the culinary side, we got them too. We got our sours, strong, stirred, tall. You know, we, we have those. We can fill those gaps in and create and be very creative with it. But they also figured out, thank God, that 90% of the audience doesn't care that you make your own bitters. <laughs> they really want to have some fun. And maybe a pinball machine or one of those sliding things like a bar has, you know, or maybe some good music offerings or like a, new modern digital jukebox, you know, drink some life to the joint, you know, and, and stop angst, angsting over whether or not they know that you make your own tonic. <laughs> so th- that's good that that happened, that they're having fun in the bar again, and the bartenders still making great drinks on top of it. And so your book <laughs> talks about some of this? Yeah, it, 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 it starts with an author's introduction. I didn't ask. Originally, I made a deal with David Wondrich. You know, I was, we were going to do a quid pro quo and I was going to get him to do. But then I realized that I really needed to do my own introduction, the one that I didn't get a chance to do back in 2000 when I signed the contract and in 2001 when I turned in the book at the end of the year. And uh, not at the end of the year, in August. And we all know what happened in September in 2001. But the book was already in the can. And the thing that devastated hospitality in New York City, I never even had an opportunity to comment on. And I was sure that this book, you know, it was just terrible timing, you know. Uh, As as it turned out in the end, that was not the case. But, But this edition gave me the opportunity to go back to that moment and talk about my New York and my 2001 and my experience on September, on September 10th, because on September 10th, I was in the private bar above the greatest bar on earth at the top of the World Trade Towers because we operated Windows on the World. And we had lost our lease at the Rainbow by then. And I'm finishing out my contract up there. I had an office up there. And my one of my duties was training. And the other one was to present regular uh, events called spirits in the skybox and what it was was an interactive cocktail class and you tasted the spirits that you were focusing on gin tequila rum and then you made cocktails along with the audience 
in this little bar that was really made for the club members. We had a downtown club, you know, and just mm-hmm. like we had the Rockefeller Club up at Windows. And the club members had access to it, and then the public after that, if it didn't fill up, and that was really fun. And the windows looked down on the main bar, you know, and we had a little buffet. So we made these tequila drinks, and well, I I, I had had a little bit of an experience with management because we did a, a a bar called Blackbird after we lost Rainbow, and there were, we we had some differences of opinion. Whatever, anyway, I was I was, I was finishing out my contract a, a little bit under under duress, <laughs> so to speak. So I I was freely signing checks, <laughs> and I did that night too. And I remember telling uh, Kevin Zraeli, who was back at Windows, he came back for the new Windows after Joe reopened, and we took over again in the mid nineties. And I said, you know, Kevin, that night we closed, we had dinner. There was like seven or eight of us at the table and other people joined us. And I'm happy to tell you, Kevin, that we drank 11 bottles of Fauve Clicquot, Windows of the World Cuvée. And Kevin said, thank you. That's 11 bottles that they didn't get, you know? So it was it was a it was something I wanted to talk about because we had a lot of friends up there that morning that were it was just you know just the luck of the draw we we had a big breakfast and so there were seventy plus employees up there yeah. you know it, it could have been thirteen but thirteen would have been too many too but that particular morning was particularly devastating. So I read about that and then I read, and then I put in the new history that I talked about earlier in the call. I wanted that to be something that these young guys could see, you know, have a feeling about what this was all about. I have a feeling about the fact that in 1987, 86, when I was researching the drinks with tradition that Joe wanted to go along with the dishes with tradition at the Rainbow, Tornados Rossini, Baked Alaska, uh, all this wonderful stuff he wanted to recreate. And I wanted, I wanted to, he wanted drinks with tradition. He didn't want creativity, by the way. Okay. You know what I'm he wanted the drinks that people hadn't had since the 19th century. And he didn't want me to riff on them. He wanted me to make them right. Uh-huh. And that was the challenge back in 19. And I, so I thought, well, let me see what everybody else is doing around town. And you know something, Liz, there were no cocktail menus anywhere, except the bull of the bear, uh, the, the, the Plaza Hotel, uh, the Bullet Bear was in the Waldorf. The Plaza Hotel had their beautiful bar. Wherever there were big hotel bars, uh, the, the, the uh, King Cole Bar, because they had got a lot of Europeans and the Europeans needed something to read that they could right, figure out right. how to order. But they were the only ones, it was usually in a drawer behind the bar, kind of overused and hadn't been reprinted in decades. But, but other than that, the only place you saw a drink on a menu was at brunch. You know, mm-hmm. a mimosa. Uh, Bloody Mary. There were no drinks. People were doing that. People were drinking scotch and rocks, vodka and rocks, scotch and soda, gin and tonic, tabs, chardonnay. It, it was not the era of the cocktail at all. You know, the only thing were the teenies. You know, you could get a you know a chocolate teeny or a mango teeny or all that stuff. But if you were a serious cocktailian, you know, as Gaz has so so aptly named us in the new millennium. You were kind of stuck with the martini in the Manhattan, and even a whiskey sour was going to be coming out of the gun. And it was going to be kind of this weird mix that the same one they used for the margarita and the same one they used for the for the Tom Collins. So all those drinks had a had a had a DNA that was basically making them taste very much the same, you know. Right. Sometimes you couldn't tell whether you were drinking a gin and tonic or a vodka tonic or a 
margarita or a, you know, because just the mix was, it was so much baggage that came along with it, you know. <laughs> anyway, that, that's, what, that's what Joe wanted. He wanted to get that stuff. We didn't have a soda gun behind the bar at the Rainbow Room. We didn't have one at Aurora where I first went for work for Joe in 1985. That fine dining restaurant, uh, where, which ended up being kind of a workshop for the two-year restoration of the Rainbow Room. That's mm-hmm. uh, where I met uh, met and uh, ended up some of the people I ended up working with uh, uh, on top of Rockefeller Center. I, I didn't know Liz that Joe was involved in that when he hired me as the head bartender at this little fine dining French restaurant. I was so confused why he asked me to do this 19th century cocktail menu when we had a big copper bin of champagne and the chef was from Paris and he loved the wines of Burgundy and we had tons of wines of Burgundy. Gerard Van Gogh, two star Michelin chef. Mm-hmm. And um, I was kind of confused really for the six months in the beginning there. And then one day, and I'm seeing Dale Chilhuly, the famous glass artist with mm-hmm. Joe and, and Milton Glaser and, and Phil George, all these big names, you know, and I, and then when Benny Goodman came in and sat at my bar, that's when I went over to Ray Wellington, the wine master. He was one of Kevin's really cellar rats. who was our wine master at Aurora. And I said, what's going on, man? So it's the rainbow room thing. I said, what rainbow room thing? So Joe, he's been working on it for almost nine months now. Where have you been? He's restoring the old rainbow room on top of Rockefeller Center, Dirty Rock, RCA building, GE building. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> now I get it. I'm a guinea pig. I'm, 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 I'm a workshop for Joe. I'm putting drinks together here that he's going to sell up there. Yeah. So I said, I want this gig. And that's when mm-hmm. I went to Joe. And I said, Joe, here, I'll reach over and get it. I got an idea for a menu, Joe. What if we were to do like a drink from the Stork Club, the Colony Club, the Copa? How about something from Cuba, Florida, the Flamingo, you know? What if we were to do like uh, from LA, the Moscow Mule, or maybe the Pink Lady, or Rainbow's Fizz and Sazerac from New Orleans, you know? I said, I've done it, just make me a menu and show me what you mean. Mm-hmm. So I got, I got his partner, Michael Whiteman, and Roseanne Gold to help me out, both in finding old books for me, but also in being my taster at the bar. Mm-hmm. And that's how I, I got the gig uh, up, at, uh, up at Rainbow. But not until I had to meet Alan Lewis, one of Joe's 45-year colleagues who worked on them on many, many projects, and he was going to be the manager. By the way, Benny Goodman was there to see Joe because he was going to open the room for the first six months. Sadly, he passed before we opened, and that never happened. But uh, but wouldn't that have been amazing? Well, we did have an amazing orchestra, don't get me wrong. One of the 30s orchestras, it was still around, you know. Mm-hmm. They were great. We had a Latin band, so there was no dearth of good musicians. I mean, we had mm-hmm. Rosemary Clooney, we had Vic Damone, we had Tony Bennett. This was in the cabaret, you know. Yeah. It, it was a stunning musically, the, the two music rooms that were active uh, seven days a week. I mean, it brought so much work to to local 100 musicians union i'm telling you it was unbelievable uh the uh the amount of club dates and the regular two regular orchestras nightly seven nights a week i mean you know it was amazing yeah Yeah. it was stunning i'll never forget rosemary clooney came in twice a year spring and fall she was regularly part of the repertoire over the years and she had the same orchestra it was a young tenor saxophone player named Scott Hamilton, a not similarly young, young flugel trumpet player, flugelhorn trumpet player named uh, 
uh, Warren Vache. She had um, fantastic guitar player, Bucky Pizzarelli, whose son played Sunday brunch in the main room, Johnny Pizzarelli. And it was a great orchestra. And I remember like the second season that they were there, uh, I get a call at the bar in the evening. She says, is this the head bartender? I say, yes, it is. It's Rosemary Clooney. She said, oh, how are you, Miss Clooney? I, I hear you drink martinis. I hope you've been enjoying my martinis. She says, I haven't, never mind. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I later in, in, inducted her into my martini club. I had a little pin. I gave all my regular oh, customers. Wow. Drink but anyway, um, she said, I don't want the musicians drinking between shows. They did an early show and a late show. I said, oh. Oh, okay, that's fine. Now, Bucky and Warren and Scott came to the bar. Bucky never drank between shows. He drank after the show, uh -huh. and he always uh -huh. drank one thing and one thing only, Ramos Fizz. Uh -huh. Well, uh, uh, I remember the brands, too. Warren drank Buna uh, Haben, and Scott drank martinis. And I <laughs> came up to the bar, but I had already got a plan. I said... Uh, guys, uh, and I told him, and Warren was fit to be told. I said, that's it, I'm, I'm out of here. That's it, that's it. And Scott said, hold the phone, hold the phone. I guess you remember, don't you, that we're going to be on Rosemary's next album. Maybe you want to just <laughs> pull the horses back for a minute, pal, you know. I said, look, guys, I've come up with something that we can serve you between shows. It's called Melancholy Baby. <laughs> I took... I took orange melon and, and, and uh, honeydew melon and lime juice and bitters. And I, I tried to make it as adult tasting as I could. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I, it was delicious, you know. I said, yeah, it's good, but, you know. And I served that to them in between shows. And when, and when the show was over, they'd come and have their regular drinks. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So what, what should we be looking for besides what you've talked about? In, in this revision of your book? Anything? Sure, I've had some fun with, with some of the just sort of American iconic, you know, like the, uh, the Greyhound. I did another shade of Greyhound, you know, <laughs> a variation, right? Uh, I do the reverse Manhattan. I have, uh, I have a whole section called The Evolution of the Martini where I start the first published martini, 1888, and I work my way through, and then a couple of my own recipes in there. The uh, Smoky Martini number two. So there's a lot of original stuff for me. There's the, there's the many drinks, uh, guest, or, uh, guest drinks, where they actually, some of them wrote a little paragraph at my, my, my invitation about why, the whys and wherefores of that particular drink. So, so I brought some of the some of the craft movement into a new glossary uh -huh. a better index than i had last time uh, uh -huh. i was willing to pay for that you get a free index you know but you never get a good index unless you pay for it if you want every single proper noun in that index you got to pay for it if you want cross references you got to pay for it you know mm -hmm. and uh and so it's a really good it's those things make it so much easier for the for the for the reader, you know, to have all that kind of information at their fingertips. And I had a fantastic photographer named Daniel Krieger who shoots for the New York Times. He shoots for, he shoot for a couple Robert Simonson's two books. He shot for a lot of cocktail books and a lot of cocktail stories. So Punch, the on, online uh, podcast called Punch, uh, shoots for Daily Beast. He shoots for a lot of folks, you know. 
And uh, I, I had a most enjoyable shoot with him, Audrey Saunders from the Pegu Club in New York City. She gave us her bar from 10 in the morning till like three in the afternoon before they had to come and set up for the evening's business. And we, he's a very fast worker, uh-huh. uh, Daniel. We did like 13 setups, 14 setups a day. And my last photographer for the last two books, four a day, if we were lucky. Oh, that's a big difference, yeah. Big, oh my God, we just shot through this. We had so much fun. You know, when you work fast, you really, you're thinking about setups, you know, how can I make this, you know, sharp and, and intimate and, you know, so you really, it's almost being more creative when you're working fast. Right, and you don't have all that downtime in between. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, in, and in many cases, some, some of the shoots I've been on that were not related to my books, where I was just doing cocktails, you had a guy back in the day in the 90s who really was a film guy, and he had to have a guy sitting on the computer over there to tell him if he got the shot. You know, they, were, they were trying to change to digital, but the, the old time, still thinking film, so they always had to have technical people on the set with them, and it became much more expensive right. for these fancy photographers to bring in the digital. And then some of the young cats started stealing business from them because they could do the whole thing themselves. They didn't even tell them if they got the shot. They right. knew they got the shot, right. you know. Yeah. My second book, The Essential, I had one of those young guys. He knew when he was getting the shot. He didn't have any helper or anything, you know. Yeah. It was brilliant. That was The Essential Cocktail. So how long did it take you to do this book? Uh, we signed the contract in, uh, let me think now, 2020. We signed the contract at the beginning of, or the end of 2018, it came out the 22nd of September, 2020. So, uh, under two years, but not much, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was a little bit better at it than I was. The, the first time? previous times. <laughs> well, the first time I didn't know for from anything about publishing or writing, and I had a really good agent, so I didn't even bother to read the all the fine print. Uh-huh. And then I sent in my my manuscript, you know, on time. And the next day, I got a nice messenger delivery with my manuscript coming back to me in a curt letter, which read, "Dear Mr. DeGroff, we have contracted you." for one book of 75,000 words, and you have delivered two books at 135,000 words. You have two weeks and you will be in breach of contract. And I'm like, yikes! <laughs> I had already spent the whole advance, you know, <laughs> on the photography and everything else. And I was terrified. Uh, I called a writer, he wasn't a book writer, he'd never written a book, but I saw his stuff around and I used to like to read him. His name was Anthony Gilio. You probably know Anthony. Anyway. He said, Anthony, can you help? I said, yeah, sure. I had two weeks. So Anthony takes the manuscript and he's reading through and he goes, this chapter's out. The whole chapter, I said, theme cocktail parties? Really? It's another book. It's out. <laughs> you know, and he, he was ruthless, but we got a book. You know, yeah. I yeah. know some of my favorite stories that I like to tell, but I had a lot of stories left in there, as you know, from the first craft. There were many stories about fun customers and difficult customers and interesting yeah. customers over the years. <laughs> you know, that happened to me when I wrote New Orleans, a food biography. My publisher said, we're taking out all the drinks, all the, all the alcohol. And I said, you oh, no. there's a book about New Orleans. <laughs> you can't take the alcohol out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's just plain dumb. <laughs> you know, the, 
then what I wound up doing was kind of paring it way down to just kind of historical notes kind of thing. Yeah. And then I used all of that in the book with Chris. Yes, uh, which is so wonderful, by the way. Into a second book. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful book. Chris is such a bright guy when it comes to the history of New Orleans, and he's oh. one of the one of the one of the legendary bartenders in that town. And and in you know, in the front of my book, I have a uh, I have a dedication. I'll read that it to page, you. That wonderful page in the front. I love that. Yeah. Oh. I said uh, first of all, I'd like to new edition dedicate to Gaz Reagan, the late it was the late Gaz Reagan, mm -hmm. uh, who taught the cocktailing community to change the world for the better, one customer at a time. But down below, I said I also, I also want to. Uh, uh, to the pioneering post-prohibition bartenders who helped restore the profession and set the stage for the craft revolution of the new millennium. A few of these notable men and women include, and right down here, at the very is Chris McMillan, McMillan, yeah. uh -huh. because he, in my opinion, was one of those people, you know, who had, had absolute uh, dignity and respect and respect of the history and respect of the drink, and, and was one of those people that changed right. where yeah. we are. You know, and anyway. I also I love the the story that you tell about Robert Hess and all of the 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 way the the internet actually had an influence on some of these things. It brought the community of the bar internationally all together in one forum, and it was the most astounding thing I ever remember seeing. We we had threads that went on in these in these. Uh, what do you call it? A string of uh, you're talking uh, about the listservs and all of that that you. Oh, I mean that the the, the, uh, the online the, the online conversations went on for one subject would go on for three weeks with bartenders right. from around the world commenting on it. You know, the threads it just, in the chat room. The threads yes. in the chat room. Yes, uh -huh. the threads were unbelievably interesting, and so you had young guys suddenly. Everything is at their fingertips. You know, yeah. they're hearing the top people in the industry argue over a quarter of an ounce or a half ounce, you know, in their aviation cocktail. And it's like, what an opportunity this is for everybody involved. You know, Robert Hess, not even a bartender, a, a, a project manager at Microsoft whose avocation was good cocktails, you know, and he was working on that whole thing at work. And this was an experiment to see how it would work, you know, and it worked gangbusters you know and it was one of one of the true unfettered no ads no nothing getting in your way you know it was just yeah. a conversation and it was brilliant uh, I, I have so much respect for Robert and for Audrey his wife who was one of my early protégés if you will you know she took my class at, I taught at NYU in continuing education they were doing some hotel and restaurant classes and uh, I did a class on Jerry Thomas, four hours long. It was, it was a workshop. It wasn't a class. Everybody was making drinks. Uh -huh. And Audrey came up afterwards and said, I'm in another business. I'm, I'm changing my life. And I, 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 I am, I've taken a job at a joint out in Brooklyn, just tending bar on Atlantic Avenue. And my friend out there knows you. And he said, I should take your class. I'm, I, I want to do this and I will work for you for free at the Rainbow Room if, if you'll teach me how to do this, you know? And I said, well, we're actually a local six restaurant. And I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even let you behind the bar. You know, I'd have the whole union down on top yeah, of me because there's people, there's a, a line of, 
a half a block long of people that want to get behind the bar at the Rainbow Room because it's a pretty good gig, you know. And uh, but I said I get a lot of pro. I get my boss Joe Baum is in with the mayor and in with the food editor at, at New York Magazine and in with James Beard, all these people, and they're doing all this stuff all the time. Restaurant week, restaurant day, you know, all these pro bono. You know, how do we promote you know tourism in New York and all this stuff? And I end up working because I'm the head bartender working for free, you know, for Joe, you know, and I don't mind it. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're at Crazy Mansion, all these great places, right? I said, I could use some help because none of my bartenders are going to work for nothing. <laughs> and they don't have to because they're all union members. Right. <laughs> so wonderful. she worked with me. And then I, when I had the opportunity at this, I call it a pop-up. It wasn't a pop-up at all. It was just a bar that closed before it should have called uh, Blackbird. And at Blackbird, and when we lost our lease at the Rainbow Room, and we still owned the lease on a small fine dining restaurant that had been Aurora, uh, they asked me if I wanted to do a turnkey. You know, uh, the circumstances of that are what led to me being back at Windows on the World. But Audrey and I worked together for ten months, and it was ten of the most creative months of my life and of her life. You know, we had such a blast. Then she went to work for Waldy Maloof over there in his wood fire kitchen on Fifty Sixth Street. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, by the way is how Craft of the Cocktail was born. Because at Blackbird, I had John Hodgman, who's now an actor and doing other things, but he was an agent back then. And he was a regular customer. He used to come up with Pete Wells and all these people in the industry because he was really into cocktails and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you gotta write a book. There's just no question about it. You gotta write a book. Yeah, well, I tried that up at Rainbow and I did. I had tried it with Joe and Joe didn't know about it. These guys from Dell Books were talking me up at the bar and I thought, wow, what a good idea. And I started working with them on a project. And the president of Dell Books called Joe to tell him some guy behind his bar was working on a book. Did he know about it? Well, he (laughs) called me down to his office. Whoa, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) Number one, we don't even own the name Rainbow. Number two, if anybody writes a book, I'm gonna write it. the hell out of my office you you know joe is just an amazing character uh so i was kind of off the book thing for a while there right. and john said well look i said well, well couldn't I, I just don't want to traipse around town i don't have time you know running to people's publishers off i said well, why don't you bring people in here and then we closed blackbird closed so so audrey i sent her over to waldy because he needed a bartender and, and she was looking for a job so our job was gone and i and uh, I sent her over there, and then I called Waldy and said, Waldy, can I borrow your bar for like an hour or something? You know, uh, I got a thing. You know, he said, sure. Yeah, no problem. I said, no, we're going to make a check and pay for everything, you know, all above board. So I, John and I, John did all the, all the legwork. He went to the publishers, called them up or whatever. And, and of course, when they found out that they were going to go to Waldy Maloof's restaurant and they were going to have cocktails and Dale DeGruff and Raymer was going to be making them. I mean, you know, it wasn't one editor, it was six. (laughs) So we had like five different publishers, you know, that sent their team over. (laughs) It was hard work. I mean, I was like back to work. And, uh, but telling stories and making drinks. And guess what? We got three offers on the book. Oh, that's great. And John says, you Stick with your principles and go for the most money. (laughs) (laughs) And we did. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it was it was it was really a wonderful process, actually. It was only the book writing part that was big pain in the neck. (laughs) Mamma mia, you know. Anyway, it's 
just about cocktail hour, and I'm going to... I think it is, yeah. I think I have a cash strength uh, ragtime rye Manhattan here. My friend Alan, Alan Katz up in New York City at New York Stilling Company. He's got a six-year-old cash strength rye, which is to mm. die for. Yeah. And of course, my bitters. Right. Instead of Angostura. <laughs> I have to tell you, I have created this recipe for a kind of a, an absinthe uh, pickled uh, shrimp that includes your bitters. So. Oh, I love that. You know, I have a sh another chef is using it in gumbo because it has a little absinthe in it, you know, a little yeah. green, green anise in uh -huh. my bitters. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I use it on stuffies, on stuffed clams, oysters, Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. I think it has yeah. a lot of culinary applications. Yeah, thank really you very do. much for that. Yes, yes. So I want to thank you so much for giving me your time today. Um, and I hope everybody can go out and get the new craft of the cocktail <laughs> by Dale DeGroff. Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate it. And I see you down there soon. I hope so. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Please come by when you are in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is 